0: Hello, New York City friends and On Being listeners. I'm thrilled to share that On Being Studios will be doing two events as part of the Work It Festival from WNYC Studios. I'll be recording a live episode of On Being with poet and MacArthur Genius fellow Claudia Rankin on the evening of November 12th. And our executive producer, Lily Percy, will be speaking with comedian and writer Justin Sayer on the night of November 14th. That's for our fabulous new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. Join us for these two conversations. Buy tickets now at WorkItEvents.com. That's WorkIt, W-E-R-K-I-T, Events.com. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer
1: Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural
0: world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with the 22nd United States Poet Laureate, Tracy K. Smith. There is a shorter produced version of this on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.
2: Good evening. Welcome to Bene I'm Rabbi Shuli Passo, I'm the Director of Community Engagement here at BJ. We are so thrilled to welcome you all to a live recording of the On Being podcast. A few housekeeping announcements before I introduce our speaker, our guest tonight. Um, First of all, could I I please see by a show of hands if you own a cell phone? (laughs) Please keep your hand up if you have your cell phone here tonight. Please take your your hand, reach down into your pocket or your purse, take out your cell phone, and please turn it all the way off. Thank you. This is a live recording, so we really don't want any interruptions uh, while the program is in session. If you do need to leave for whatever reason, uh, please use the door in the back. Please be very quiet as you leave. If you then wanna come back in, we're gonna ask you not to come back to your seat, but instead to go up to the balcony, the stairs to the balcony are just out the door. And someone will be there to direct you. I also wanna point out that in the corner over here, we have Lucretia and Shira from our membership department here at BJ. it's membership season. So if you are a member of BJ, they can help you renew your membership. If you're not a member of BJ, we invite you to learn more about this community, get some information, and think about joining us. I want to extend a couple of thank yous to the teams of On Being and Binay Jeshrin that helped put this event t- together tonight. Uh, in particular, I want to single out a couple of folks Lily Percy on the On Being team, who's been a delight, pleasure to work with. Uh, Larissa Wohl and Adara Davis here at Bene who really worked extremely hard to make this evening possible. <clears throat> and I want to say a special thank you to BJ member Jeannie Blaustein, who made the introduction to Krista Tippett and got this program rolling and brought it here tonight. Thank you, Jeannie. I think many of you know, or some of you know, that this recording of On Being is the final concluding program of a year-long initiative that we've been hosting here at BJ called Faith and Public Life. It's a program that's been exploring the relationship between religion and politics. And some of the goals of this initiative have been to engage in reflection and introspection on how our country arrived at where we are in this political moment. To learn from diverse voices inside and outside of our community on issues such as politics, religion, race, and civil society. To consider what role communities of faith and morality can play in re-knitting the torn fabric of today's America. And to be inspired to act, to act in ways that help our country live up to its core values, core ideals of justice, equality, and freedom. So when we think about who we're gonna learn from tonight, let me tell you who we're gonna learn from tonight. Krista Tippett, a Peabody award-winning broadcaster and New York Times best-selling author, whose biography describes her as someone who avoids easy answers, embraces complexity, and invites people of every background to join her in conversation about faith, ethics, and moral wisdom. And Tracy K. Smith, professor of poetry at Princeton University, Pulitzer Prize winner, and US Poet Laureate, who was described by the New York Times as a woman whose mission is to bring poetry to the masses as an antidote to America's toxic civic culture. So when we think about who we are going to learn from this evening, I think that the conversation we're going to hear tonight will shed light on some of the questions we've been asking here all year long, the questions of the Faith in Public Life Initiative, and that makes this recording of On Being a very fitting conclusion to our year-long program. It's a tremendous honor to welcome On Being, Krista Tippett, and Tracy K. Smith.
0: It's such a joy to be here. Um, I just I said to somebody backstage, I've, I've wanted to come to B'nai Jeshurun forever. This is such a legendary sacred place and such a creative religious place. Um, and to be here with Tracy K Smith I have, I've been <laughs> we've, I've known so when did we start oh you you turned up on the stage of this selected shorts, mm-hmm. and yeah. that was the first time we met and I knew. Uh, and so I've known I wanted to speak with her for a long time. But now, when we've been together, I have been purposely not speaking about anything <laughs> meaningful, <laughs> so that it's all here with you tonight. And I even, like, avoided her backstage, so I, no. <laughs> now I'm engaging. Okay. <laughs> um, but to be, and you are the 52nd US Poet Laureate. Um, I, I think all the time about, um, this moment we inhabit, and uh, you know, the day after the election of 2016, it felt so clear to me that um, who, whoever had won, well, actually moving through that whole year, whoever had won the work ahead, uh, and I always you, you know, found myself coming up with these images of like sewing or knitting, which I don't do, but like mm-hmm. stitching, weaving, mending, whatever common life, can be for the 21st century. Must be for the 21st century. And I think we would have had to reinvent that anyway, um, because it was never going to be what it was in 1956 or 2006. But then there's this ad. There are these chasms that were suddenly revealed. Many of which had already been there. We hadn't seen them. Yeah. So you here in this community have been doing this work of, uh, I think, reimagining matters of common life at the intersection of religion and politics, and Tracy has spent the last year using her stature and the ceremony of her role as Poet Laureate, being out there in the country and being in parts of the country that she didn't know so well before. And there's one place you said, I love this, you said, um, of the, of, because the Poet Laureate can kind of do what they want with the role, but you said, I, I wanted to see if it's true that the feelings poems alert us to, equip us to transcend and cross divides. And you, you've specifically focused on the geographic divide, but, but naming the fact that those geographic divides contain so many other mm-hmm. points of identity and separation. Um, so here we are. So we are going to have a conversation up here for half an hour. Forty minutes, and then we are going to open it up for um, some questions that might be on your mind. I will, I think somebody will wave at me in a little while and tell you, I believe you may have, did everybody have a card on their seat? So um, uh, at some point we'll collect those cards. We'll speak for 10 more minutes and then we'll open it up and we'll close the hour back up here together. Okay. Um, And I brought... Wait in the water, and you brought everything. I brought everything. Yeah. (laughs) So I want you to feel free. Like I I may ask you to read some poems. Mm -hmm. I want us. You know, I want you to feel free if you feel called to just pull out a book, any book. Okay. Um, So you were born in Massachusetts and raised in Northern California. Um, I wonder how you would, um, how you would begin to describe like the the religious and spiritual background Mm -hmm. of your childhood. Well, um, I was born into a household
1: where God lived. <laughs> That's what it feels like. My parents were both um, faithful people from the South. Um, I think they had different, uh, different relationships to that faith, but they both came from the black church, and um, my parents were born in the mid-30s, mm-hmm. and I understand that... The community that the church fostered was spiritual and social. Mm. You know, there's the the sense of you know God can make your life better, and if we can look out for each other, and if we can hold ourselves to a standard of discipline, um, it's going to be a lot easier to live in the segregated place. Mm. Um, so I think I got both strains of that growing up. Of course, I mean, a generation later, the political um, climate was different. But um, I think the sense of discipline and the sense that um, we owe something larger than ourselves our best was was a big part of, of what um, I was raised just mm-hmm. knowing. Um, but faith was also... Um, something that my mother cleaved to toward the end of her life. Um, She was diagnosed with cancer when I was leaving home for college. And um, at that point, this kind of like ongoing conversation with God that she had always had and that I had learned to have that said, oh, I'm worried about this test. Well, let's pray, try and get a sense of peace. Um, That became just amplified for her, right? She was looking to the next thing. And um, I
0: think I absorbed that. And you, you wrote that beautiful memoir, um, Ordinary Light, um, which, which centered a lot around the experience of her dying and mm-hmm. what you call the miracle of death that we don't think about as much as we think of the miracle of life. I got the sense also, um, and so much of your poetry is It's very very rich with biblical metaphors and allusion, but it it sounds like when you were writing that memoir in particular, you you had to overcome kind of an embarrassment about speaking about religion Mm -hmm. that had had grown in you as you left home and became a Princeton professor. It started to, I I found myself um,
1: in the book of poems that, that comes right before the memoir of talking about God, you know, as a metaphor, maybe as something that was a factor in this interest in the universe that I had. And yet there was that word coming up again and again. And this kind of idea, let me imagine what the afterlife might be now that I have both of my parents there. And then I said, oh, I'm talking about God a lot. This is something that's on my chest in a way. And so turning to prose was a way of trying to find a non-metaphor-based vocabulary for talking about something. Interesting. Um, it's easier to claim faith when it's a symbol of something else. But to go back and say, when I was little, Jesus was, you know, a real person. And um, this is what it felt like to live within that and then to see that perspective from the outside with a little bit of anxiety. It was... Um, It was something I think I had avoided talking or writing about, and writing the memoir helped me to understand what the journey that I'd been on, that I'm still on, um, what it was made up of, what it was shaped like.
0: Yeah, I mean, here's something you said, that, um, that you realized it had become hard as an artist Um, as a member of an institution of higher learning (laughs) to talk about God and not in in an ironic way. And I just thought the juxtaposition of that language of higher learning and
1: (laughs) this this is the thing you
0: can't talk about.
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with authority. We cleave to a sense of authority when we're in positions of you know, teaching. Or even as a student, you want to demonstrate that you've mastered something, that you have a complex perspective about something, and that it's bloodless in a way. Yes. And so to say, but I have a sense of faith in something that I haven't and probably will never master, something that doesn't fit neatly within a discipline, um, it's scary. It's a kind of surrender, and it makes you vulnerable.
0: Mm. Yeah, and when you say it that way, it also sounds like it makes you un-American. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, oh, I did love this, I, this image. You, I heard you talking in some interview about um, that when you were young, you had an idea or you almost wrote a poem that the you imagined the afterlife as a library. <laughs> yeah,
1: I tried to write that poem for a long time. Um, I was working in a library at the time that mm-hmm. the idea for the poem occurred to me, and um, there were particular characters that seemed to represent different like celestial roles, different like, I don't know hierarchical you know roles, and it never got written. it never got finished. Um, but. There is a part of me that thinks there's something amazing about the human experience as catalogued, mm-hmm. um, preserved, and revered in a space like that. I okay. guess that kind of fashions the afterlife as something that's looking at the human experience.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: don't know. Could that be true? But I think that's what we, what we sort of assume, what we hope.
0: Yeah. So how do you, where do you trace... Um, how poetry kind of entered your bloodstream. Was it that Emily Dickinson poem? Or <laughs> is that the first memory you have? I think, yeah.
1: I, I remember it may not be the first poem that I heard or read, but it was the first poem I found on my own. The Emily Dickinson poem that begins I'm nobody, who are you, are you nobody too? And I felt called in a way, I felt seen. And the poem made me imagine myself in terms that felt right, but that I'd never used for myself before. That felt exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Years later, when I discovered poetry again and was more eager to kind of like steep myself in what a poem was, what poets did, It was a similar feeling. Um, A poet could be describing, like Seamus Heaney, describing his childhood in rural Ireland. Um, And I found myself there too. And I said, well, this is familiar somehow because of the way that the poem has kind of surrounded me with um, place and feeling and memory that otherwise are completely foreign to me. Um, I loved the way that poems also taught me New ways of looking at the world that I could keep. Mm. Um, I was in college. I knew my mother was sick. I didn't know exactly what that meant. I didn't want to let myself extrapolate. but um, I think in retrospect, looking at small things until they became better or different from themselves was a consolation. you.
0: Yeah. We should let that pass for radio purposes. Okay. Um, you, in this beautiful interview you gave for the Times recently, you, you know, I'm always looking. I'm always um, when I when I interview. I'm really interested in drawing out different language and understandings of what it is, what it is that poetry works in us, or where it comes mm-hmm. from in us. And um, you know, like Elizabeth Alexander. Um, gave me an image I've worked with a lot uh, years ago that, you know, poetry gets at undergirding truths, mm. which is something quite distinct from fact, yeah. you know, and we're so obsessed with fact, and I think what we have to get back to is a way to talk about undergirding truths and that poetry can do that. And you, um, you mentioned in that Times article that, what did you say, the, the meditative state of mind that a poem induces in us can be humanizing, yeah. I think we um, we submit
1: to so many things that are pulling our attention outward and that are sort of preempting acts of the imagination and that are turning our, you know, questions they're not really inward, but they're self-facing. Right? How do I look? How am I presenting myself? Who will follow me? What? Um, what can I? What can I do to brand myself? Um, I think all of that is distracting us from the quiet um, certainty or wisdom of the inner voice, which everyone has, which I think is fascinating to me because it's smarter than we are, and mm. it's bigger than we are. Mm. And there are things that are inside of me that are also inside of you somehow. And and um, I think there are lots of things that draw us back into that that sense, but I think poetry is one of them,
2: mm-hmm.
1: partly because of how it works with language, right? So so much of what we feel is outside of words, poems, wield language in a way that brings us close to you know the boundary between language and feeling and yeah. um, and also
0: language and actually what can't be named yeah
1: which is the most interesting part of our experience right uh-huh. the things that 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 resist speech um so i i feel like it's um it's restor- it's a restorative practice right it it says there is a space for all of the other things but there's a sacred space Mm -hmm. for something that's real and maybe even ageless and um it excites me to think about that
0: yeah i um there's you um in a conversation you had with elizabeth alexander you you talked about discovering the discipline and devotion of being a poet at college. And you also said something that I thought was illuminating uh, about this. Because um, you said that, uh, and you you know, nuanced this, because if, uh, you know, if this has changed or if, or if this doesn't capture it all, but that for you, becoming a poet was also a kind of commitment to living a certain way, um, looking closely at details, feeling things with great fervency. And never moving too far from a childlike wonder and questioning, uh, which is not necessarily an easy way to live. <laughs> I think um,
1: I feel lucky. Um, and living with young children, which I do, I yeah. have some. They teach you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it is. I mean, yeah. it, it seems like instinctive, right? To, to look, to listen, to yeah. play, to allow an interesting kind of slippage between what is, you know, literal and what is, you know, like fanciful, what's wonderful. Um, looking closely at small things, listening to what I know, but also being really interested in what I don't know. Uh, what I can play at learning um, I feel like it's a it's a practice that I think is still it still characterizes what I imagine that i'm doing mm-hmm. um, I think it also um, has made me eager to listen to other other voices strange voices um, to imagine the places those voices come from, the experiences those voices bear witness to I mean that kind of work gets less and less like fanciful, and I think more earnest, more um, rigorous in a way. How can I use what I know to move past what I know and into what you know, and into what you know you feel compelled to share? Um, that's where I feel poetry brings us into citizenship in a different way.
0: Yeah, and I think it's in that spirit and with that sensibility that you've moved out into the country this year, which is... I love thinking about you out there in that spirit, like <laughs> interacting. Um, and I just, you know, I want to, um, I want you to kind of tell us what you're, what you're experiencing. I sometimes feel like there are, you know, there's the official story of our time and the official conversation, the official conversation of our time, and it's strident and harsh and loud and fractious. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's a whole, there's this whole other narrative unfolding and like that's what you're looking at, listening for, participating in. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what, I wonder, you know, if you, if you thought about it that way, like what, what story of our time have you been experiencing these years?
1: Yeah, it's, it's been, um, beautiful, um, I think, again, because it's, it's, poetry facilitates this thing that says, okay, we're not going to be talking at each other or speculating about each other, um, but rather opening ourselves up to something, a voice on a page, and talking about what that speaks to. So suddenly I can be in a room of people um, you know, whose lives are very different from mine, but we can all be thinking about someone we've loved or a place that we, you know, belong to, someone we've lost. And suddenly, our vocabulary is um, something we can share, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really interesting the way that, you know, I teach creative writing, and I urge my students to be as as concrete, as precise, as as thorough and rigorous as they can in building um, the worlds that they're describing, but there's i think that's important because there are these other spaces where something more ambiguous lives right the sense of feeling the particular attachment that we have to people think that all of that stuff that again resists language right. and so when you go out and you know into the country talking about poetry with people we're cleaving to the certainties that poems alert us to and listening to the private story that poems remind us of Mm. does that make sense yeah We're, we're, we're sharing something and and leaning into each other to say oh well this reminds me of my father my relationship was a little bit different it was like this um and I feel like that's um it's Antithetical to the tenor of, you know, political conversation, which is yeah. adrenalized, which is full of all of these certainties, whether or not they're earned, and which is defensive.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: this is about saying, oh, right, I feel something. What do you feel?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so where have you been?
1: Well, I've been doing different kinds of travel. Um, the project that the Library of Congress is facilitating um, is taking me into rural communities and, you know, community spaces, libraries, um, churches. And that was
0: your choice, right? Yeah. Like you designed this. And, yeah. and then, so when you go out, are you, um, you're, it sounds like you're not, a, you're reading your poetry sometimes, but you're also you're bringing other, you're bringing poetry, you're bringing, you're reading other people's poetry, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, well, what's nice about that is that I'm bringing, um, if I'm just reading my poems, that's a story that I'm kind of driving. We can, we can talk about those poems, but I like the idea of reading poems that I love, that I've come to recently, or that I've lived with a, a long time, and being a, sort of a spectator with mm, the audience, yes. and so we're, we're, we're listening. It's like we're sitting at somebody else's feet together listening. Um, both of those those things are, are exciting. And since talking about this project, I've also gotten a lot of invitations to come to you know rural places, um, maybe people who do have reading series or people who say, oh, let's get the school kids together. Um, mm. And so that's also been a really exciting way of, of just visiting different parts of the country that I wouldn't necessarily... Find my way to.
0: Yeah, so like, so you, I think you've been to South Carolina and these are some of the places I read about. And you started in New Mexico on an Air Force base.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, Which was great. Mm -hmm. Um, My father was in the Air Force, and so it was exciting to be in that space as an adult. Um, It was odd to feel older than almost everybody you know like my father seemed so old when I was young (laughs) and suddenly I see all of these people in their 30s yeah um and um I visited uh the Native American School of Santa Fe Mm -hmm. um where there's a really thriving sense of art um and language um that's revered preserved and, you know, like um, defended even in a way. Um, And that was exciting. Um, It was beautiful to think that some of the ideas I have about poetry and and the thing that happens when we listen together and allow ourselves to be moved together, it was exciting to hear that talked about in um, a vocabulary that had to do with actual faith you know, or with ceremony that the students and members of that community were familiar with. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: It stopped being metaphorical, if that makes sense.
0: Right. So um, I wonder if you, if there's a poem um, that maybe you've read, you know, in 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 this time, kind of out with our fellow citizens, um... That that you, that has changed for you because I mean whether you would read something like maybe oh, maybe sure. a poem that means something different to you because of the conversations it has sparked. Yeah. Um.
1: This is a poem. Um,
0: there there
1: are a lot of poems in this book that are um, about events and about things about history, and then there's one poem that is um, it's sort of strange. Um, It's a metaphor-based poem. Um, It feels, even as I read it, that the metaphor is slippery. Um, I wrote it thinking about one thing, and then hearing people talk about it and ask about it, it's come to mean something else for me. So I'll read it first.
2: yeah.
1: Ash. Strange house we must keep and fill. House that eats and pleads, and kills. House on legs. House on fire. House infested with desire. Haunted house. Lonely house. House of trick and suck and shrug. Give it to me, house. I need you, baby, house. House whose rooms are pooled with blood. House with hands. House of guilt. House that other houses built. House of lies and pride and bone. House afraid to be alone. House like an engine that churns and stalls. House with skin and hair for walls. House the seasons singe and douse. House that believes it is not a house. Mm. So I wrote that poem thinking about the body, thinking about what it means to be alive in this human form and how strange it is that it's temporary, that we are not just the body, but something else, um, and that's the way I've read it—the first many times that I read it, or at least what I heard myself saying. But there's a lot of, you know, like ambiguity in the poem, and so people have questions about it. Um, someone has told me it feels like a poem that more than just being in the body is about being a woman, mm-hmm. and and that sense of, you know, vulnerability and also sheltering something. And then because a lot of these poems in this book are thinking about nationhood and American history. Um, I was really excited to hear it described as a poem that is about the country as a house, Mm. taking us back to even Abraham Lincoln in the sense of a house divided against itself. Um, But I love that um, readers, active readers, can give you a good enough argument to re-hear and see what you've, what you've made yourself. Yeah, the same thing happens with other poems too. I visited a um, men's rehab facility in uh, Kentucky and read poems that were, you know, love poems, um, poems about faith in, in and in a sort of natural world context and loved hearing how much um, those poems spoke to the struggle of addiction, um, Mm. or even the the power dynamic between members of a family when addiction is the conflict. Um,
0: Mm. Um, Here's something that you said, um, this kind of gets at that, uh, that, um, about the kind of conversation that art can foster you said our lives are so much more interesting than the ways they are described from the outside. Um, They're so much more interesting when we can meet each other as individuals with experiences and questions and histories rather than social categories. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what this poetry creates, that encounter. I think so.
1: I mean, I was just talking with a student today about some poems and um you know there's something great that can happen when you simply sit down and describe what you've seen and what you know but i think there's something much more um powerful about looking at like the micro level of what you think you've seen till you see something that you didn't know was there mm. and i think that's the same thing that you know talking past the word packages and Kind of like categories that we've been taught to see or, or submit to. Um, it's exciting to say, oh, but <laughs> there are these specific, unique, even sort of like contradictory terms that make you you and me me. And mm-hmm. um, it's exciting to touch that, you know, with language.
0: It, it also feels, you know, I think it's so important that we, to speak with, po- that poets are part of. You know that 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 this your voice is part of our is part of our cultural imagination and discourse, um, but also that it's not, you know what 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 you're describing what you're taking out into the world is not something you have to be a poet to engage, right? Like mm-hmm. Paul Muldoon, who you probably work with, I think at Princeton, yeah. you know, points out that we 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 all actually. Uh, live with and engage with poetry all the time through music yeah all kinds of music right like he says you know bob dylan is one of the greatest poets who ever lived and so i that was in my mind when bob dylan won the nobel prize yeah, and it was so absolutely. controversial but i thought no look at this um but the bible i mean here we are in a synagogue is full of poetry right uh and I think that there is an innate, this very profound, sophisticated, innate intelligence behind that. Right. All these things you're describing, this text has known.
1: It's amazing to me to think how much metaphor lives in the Bible, mm. the New Testament. You know, like Christ is just describing something otherworldly, something, you know, uh, the nature of a miracle or or, or of redemption or... Um, and it doesn't live in everyday terms, and so we've got to walk ourselves over to these strange comparisons in order to gather a sense of the the might or the you know wonder or the terror of what's being described. Mm-hmm. Um, it, love feels like that sometimes. Mm-hmm. We we feel moved because the presence of another person feels stranger more exhilarating or terrifying or wonderful than it's supposed to and so we've got to go into these wrong contexts in order to get the feelings right and we're used to doing that um, yeah, with song Um, and somehow when it happens and it's just printed on the page we second guess ourselves I think we get a lot of encouragement to second guess ourselves by the question does poetry matter (laughs) which comes up all the time Um, We never ask, does fiction matter? We never ask, does music matter? And they speak to many of the same feelings and concerns.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So if you have a question, um, this is the time. Will somebody be walking around? um, I want to actually... I wanna dive in a little bit more to some of the things you said recently in this interview. Um, You you said, and you were were talking about this this time you're spending as Poet Laureate. You said, I think there are lots of places where we have something very clear, compelling, and welcome to say to one another. Uh, I'm interested in the way our voices sound when we dip below the decibel level of politics. Mm -hmm. So tell us, how that sounds. Like tell us what you've been hearing.
1: Well, um one of the things I'm struggling with is okay, it's gonna sound different everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I there isn't a rural perspective um that I can report on, which is great. I think that like underscores well, but all I of that. I think that's hope. actually part of it, yeah, right? Exactly. That it's not one
0: voice or one conversation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I I remember um some really lovely things. I remember um in kentucky talking it was my first time in the state of kentucky and i was really blown away by the beauty of the landscape and just driving we did a lot of driving from one destination to another and seeing this beautiful undeveloped land with a few horses or you know houses that were so close to the miraculous you know beauty and um and uh i really wanted to know what that felt like what what people's um sense of allegiance to the natural world felt like there, how much they were aware of it or whether it was so familiar that they didn't see it. And I, you know, I was asking, I was in a room with mostly mothers and and young kids in a library and, um, the kids, um, you know, were interested in nature and interested in video games and all the things that, you know, all, all of our kids are aware of. And, the mothers that i spoke to said i'm i'm excited that my kid has access to everything that everyone else has and i'm really scared too Hmm. because they, they don't play in the mud the way that i used to um i don't know that they see what we have in the way that that i can even over you know the last few decades the small changes signal that maybe this is finite in some way um to me that felt really exciting more exciting than saying what's your take on environmental protection right
0: right right. yeah
1: like what what do you look out and see and and what does it make you want to do or what does it make you you know long for or or want to I don't know
0: yeah protect in some
1: way Um,
0: yeah yeah um I wonder uh have there been things that this con- this listening and this conversation, things you've learned about yourself that have surprised you? Um, I mean, actually, you know, one thing that was interesting to me is that you, Wade in the Water kind of was published, converged with becoming Poet Laureate, right, mm-hmm. and being out there. And you said that you were, I mean, what did you say? You were surprised to realize that this was a... Um, this was, was a book that had a really political overtone. Like, what did you say that that it that it um that you had some beautiful language um oh um that these are such American poems, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that you yourself had not understood that until the book was being engaged with a wider world.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that. Writing about America in the past has been, um, I think I've I've written, what does my perspective as an American make me blind to in other parts of the world? And so there are poems in my, you know, Second book that are really thinking globally, poems in um, Life on Mars that are thinking in almost dystopian terms, imagining a future. But this is a book that's really thinking about the institutions that um, America claims and, and fought, has, you know, the Declaration of Independence or um, the Civil War and, and the, the lives that were shaped by that conflict. Yeah. Um, it was really surprising to me. Um but I think it it also it makes sense to me that the questions I have about the moment that we live in now, all of the all of the difficulty we have in talking to each other about difference, about race, um, all of the ways that history, which once felt so remote, um, feels mm. closer and yeah. active and unresolved. Um, it makes sense that those are, those are questions that are on the surface of these poems and that looking back to history is an attempt to say, is there anything that we haven't yet heard that could be helpful now mm-hmm. in unraveling this knot? Um, I found myself listening to um, voices that come out of slavery in a way that I had never done before, in a way that I thought, oh, other writers are better at that. Other writers know how to tell those stories. Um, but I, I was, and am interested in the very compelling statements of lived experience that blacks during the civil war, um, made to president Lincoln or to the the bureau, the Pension Bureau, bureau um, and um, writing uh, this book during a time where there was a lot of um, racial violence made yeah. those voices urgent to me in a new way
0: you, it, the, just the way you said that feels so important um, I mean it, it feels like something I've, that's all around us but you're putting words around it that that all one of the aspects of this moment is that things that felt farther away not that long ago feel so close and mm-hmm. so alive. Um, which I think often uh, comes to us as a terrible shock and feels like a failure, but it is also, it's a moment of reckoning,
1: right? Yeah.
0: Um, you who had that the, that sequence of civil war poems, the like the found poems, mm-hmm. would you read a little bit of of that? sure, yeah, and just um, tell the story of those?
1: okay. Um, a few years ago, um the National Portrait Gallery celebrated the one hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War with an exhibition of portraits, and they invited a number of poets to write poems about the Civil War in some way and um, I didn't think that was something I would know how to do. I never had a a kind of a curiosity um, about the Civil War. I had discomfort when Mm. learning about it in school. Um, But I found letters and um, testimonies that black veterans had given after the war in an attempt to get their pensions. And again, that that distance closed up. And um, I just said, if we could listen to these together, maybe we could feel something that could be really helpful. Um, so maybe I'll read you one section of, um, of a poem in which uh, family members are writing to the president about, right. about the experience of their enlisted um, family. Excellent Sir, my son went in the 54th Regiment Sir, my husband, who is in Company K, 22nd Regiment, U.S. Colored Troops, and now in the Macon Hospital at Portsmouth with a wound in his arm, has not received any pay since last May, and then only $13. Sir, we the members of Company D, of the 55th Massachusetts Volunteers, Call the attention of your excellency to our case. For instant, look and see that we never was freed yet. Run right out of slavery, in to soldiery, and we hadn't nothing at all. And our wives and mother, most all of them, is a perishing all about. And we all are perishing ourselves. I am willing to be a soldier and serve my time faithful like a man, but I think it is hard to be put off in such doggish manner as that. Will you see that the colored men fighting now are fairly treated? You ought to do this and do it at once, not let the thing run along, meet it quickly and manfully, We poor oppressed ones appeal to you and ask fair play. So, please, if you can do any good for us, do it in the name of God. Excuse my boldness, but please, your reply will settle the matter and will be appreciated by a colored man who is willing to sacrifice his son in the cause of freedom. And humanity. I have nothing more to say hoping that you will lend a listening ear to an humble soldier. I will close yours for Christ's sake. I shall have to send this without a stamp for I hate money enough to buy a stamp. Hmm. I love the appeal to justice and, and goodness, you know, the, yeah. the sense that yeah. it's not just that, but it's also, it, you have to do the, the manly thing. You have to man up. Um, I was really just sort of like moved to see somebody who is enslaved saying that they're willing to sacrifice their son in the cause of freedom and humanity. And suddenly those words are not abstractions. Mm-hmm. Um, or even the you know throughout these, these letters, um, the sense of um, powerful metaphor that comes up in this attempt to make an urgent appeal. There's one one um, letter that a, a mother wrote uh, saying, you know, my son is the only help I have, and now he's gone. Um, I'm old, and my head is blossoming for the grave. Mm-hmm. You know, just please help. Um, I didn't think there was any need for my voice to enter this poem. I just yeah. wanted to curate uh, a chorus of these other very compelling voices.
0: Yeah, there's such um, depth and dignity, and it's very—you know—and it's, it's so different from a letter you can imagine anyone writing to a anybody in a bureaucracy now. Like, yeah. what is that?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's this really beautiful sense um, of belief in the tenets of democracy yes, that are yes. being offered by someone who's sort of locked outside of that promise, but seeing, you know, if Abraham Lincoln could make the right choice, the doors to, you know, freedom and humanity yeah. will open up, will be inside of it. And so maybe there's this sense I must believe that this is possible. That was really kind of awe inspiring. Yeah. And maybe I, I like the idea that if we, if we stop being cynical and if we believe that this thing we've built is built on something that's real and that's worth struggling for, um, if we hold each other to a higher standard, um, maybe, maybe we can open those doors again. I
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. do. You, oh. Are we having questions? Where is that?
1: Okay. Hi, so um, I'm Larissa Wall. I'm the Sed Ecker social justice program manager at the synagogue. I'm very delighted to be here. So this is for both Tracy and Krista. Um, can you share some of your feelings and experiences in using poetry as a tool to catalyze difficult and transformational conversations? That question makes it sound like it's easy, <laughs> so well laid out. Um, Well, I teach. You know, most of my experience, even though I've been traveling a lot this year, is in the classroom. And I try and urge my students to think that um, the questions they have as people and as citizens can be processed by the writing of a poem. Um, And so I ask them to, to write sometimes about things they They haven't got their heads around things they don't understand, things that are unresolved, things that worry them. And somehow, um, we get to think about the the ideas and the themes and the facts. We're moved by them. Uh, We're made to see them in new ways. And we also get to think about what language is doing in the poem. And what excites me about poetry Um, is that language insists upon what is not easy. A good poem isn't made of the first thoughts or words that come into your head. And a good poem is never going to follow the well-worn path of, like, habit. Um, And so language urges you to push against what you might think you know Mm what you might initially be inclined to draw from what you've observed and even what you believe and that's exciting because you're wandering away from the things that you feel confident of and you're wandering into a place where oh maybe you're maybe you're not so right you know maybe you're vulnerable in ways that you hadn't anticipated And maybe the vulnerability that you're willing to claim isn't the whole story. Um, I love doing that. And I love that, you know, I I get to teach in in a place where, you know, it's a room of 10 or 11 people and we feel safe. So we can go out on a limb. It's harder to do that, you know, like uh, with strangers. But um, I think the act of reading allows you to kind of quietly do that with a Mm. voice that's, that's not your own.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I would, I would um, just, you know, pick up on that word quiet. Um, Because I mean, even the question, like, I think, I can't remember whether, but catalyzing, like, this is what we have this impulse to do uh, in this country in particular. And um you know i like uh, ad nauseum quote rilke i think my colleagues have it it's a drinking game right like but like living the questions right and because because we need our questions we need we need good robust beautiful searching questions right now and we need to hear each other's questions as much as we need to pit our answers against each other yeah and like even when you use that language of um that poetry induces a kind of meditative state, which can sound kind of abstract, but, but mm-hmm. what it is, is is it insists, there's something about the way language works in poetry that it insists that you reflect and, like, mull, right? Yeah. And so many of the, f- well, the forms of language with which actually we're, we're skilled and fluent and trained in make no space for mulling or even for, right. for 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 admitting what you don't know even if you know you don't know them it's it's not built into to what you're presenting the yeah. so poetry stops us and it quiets us and as you I also love the way you said it it turns us inside but not and it, it is it it comes from our interior lives which are underdeveloped in this culture compared to our exterior lives mm-hmm.
1: I like that poetry also, um, it brings in different, like, words for thinking about things. Like, poems I've been writing recently are trying to bring love into the conversation with, um, you know, like, the political. Usually we can get as close to love as tolerance when we're talking about policy, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very different thing. Yeah. You get a look on your face when you're tolerating yeah. something. <laughs> That's you not know, about embracing in it. In the right?
0: medical context, tolerance is about the limits of thriving in an unfavorable environment. Yeah, exactly. Um
1: and I just think we can do better than that. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm excited to say, okay, love isn't just flowers and hearts. Right. Love is work. <laughs> love is dangerous. Love is ennobling, but not in the easy, pretty way that we sometimes imagine that it is because love doesn't just exist between two people who have chosen yes. each other. Right. Um, and so I, I've been really interested in writing about compassion because I'm trying to learn it a little bit
0: better, mm. you know. Mm. Yeah. And give us, create a public vocabulary for it. Yeah. As, that's something that's serious.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Great, so we- Here's a great question to follow up on that. This is Shuli again. You met me earlier. How do we continue to cultivate the quality of the inner voice and knowing in our children and value that in public education and in the university? Mm. I
1: think that it starts with a really simple thing. I remember long stretches of my day and my life where I was bored when I was a child, where I was in silent space without screens distracting me. And I had to think and I Mm -hmm. had to look at things and and imagine them to have whatever kind of meaning or agency came into my head. And I think that's something that children need to do. Um, I think a really great thing in terms of fostering that inner life for kids is to take things out of their face and let them, you know, turn inward. um, To give them maybe a little bit less in terms of, like, activities and scheduling. Even though it's hard as a parent, if you take those things away, you have to kind of be on the front. Yeah. But I think it's so important to just let them be. Um, It's important to let ourselves be, too. We have submitted to lots of things that, you know, kind of make it seem like that's a luxury we can't afford. Um, I had a teacher uh, when I was in grad school, the poet Linda Gregg, whose work I think is so beautiful, so philosophical, so courageous. um, And she said your brain is so resourceful that it will only really allow you to remain bored for about 15 minutes yeah. before it begins to generate valuable material. Um, and yeah, get past the 15 minutes with yourself yeah. and your kids, I think that's a big part of that.
0: I feel like this is rising up, this understanding, it, even the, even the language of boredom. It's, I'm going to be so curious to see how we reinvent boredom because we're going to have to impose it. We're going to have to actually create structure. Yeah. And like time a, a big boredom. box. Yes. Uh,
1: you can sell yeah. it and, and yeah. okay, this is boredom. You need mm-hmm. this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do, you, how do you balance outrage and sitting down for poetry or conversation with regards to the state of our nation and the treatment of black women? I think there is a value to outrage. Um, I think that it activates a kind of power that we can choose to act upon. In art, I think that outrage might lead me to the page, but it has to sort of go sit down somewhere else when I'm writing a poem Um, because... I I really do believe this. Uh, A good poem isn't going to be the result of the certainty that drives emotions like anger and outrage. If I know I'm right and they are wrong, my poem is going to be a tract. But if I can say, what are the the sort of weird spaces that are underimagined, What are the the areas where I either am already um, perpetuating something that is part of what I've envisioned as the problem, or what are the imagined spaces I can enter into where I have to get uncomfortably close to that problem? That's where something really, I think, interesting starts to happen. Mm -hmm. I might finish a poem and see something differently. It doesn't necessarily change the sense of outrage that I might also feel, but it's illuminated something that, um, that feels productive. Hmm.
0: I think that discipline that you describe, you know, doesn't just apply to the writing of a poem, right? Like somehow outrage is uh, justified, can be justified, it can be important, it can be a moral response, but finding, right? Finding that finding how we let it drive us, and when we know, in fact, being motivated by it won't affect. Yeah, what we actually need to affect.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, even those two words—they feel so.
1: They're it's a forceful, but it doesn't feel creative yeah. or generative. Yeah. And um, changing things, is, it's a generative act, I think. Um, can I read a poem? Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, there's a, a photo that everybody's probably seen um, that came out of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement a couple of years ago. Um, it's called Unrest in Baton Rouge. And it depicts a woman. Her name is Aisha Evans. She's wearing this gauzy sundress, blowing in the wind. And then on the other side of the frame, there are a row of police officers in in combat gear. And um, I was invited to write a poem about that image, which I saw. And I felt something like certain and powerful when I saw it. But the poem had me think differently. Um, I had to come up with different terms for what I saw, and those terms pushed me to think about what we do or what we might do differently. Pushed me to think about you know, fear, which is also, I think, part of that image differently. Unrest in Baton Rouge. Our bodies run with ink-dark blood, blood pools in the pavement's seams. Is it strange to say love is a language few practice, but all or near all speak? Even the men in black armor, the ones jangling handcuffs and keys. What else are they so buffered against if not love's blade? sizing up the heart's familiar meat. We watch and grieve. We sleep, stir, eat. Love, the heart sliced open, gutted, clean. Love, naked almost, in the everlasting street, skirt lifted, by a different kind of breeze. It felt almost um, frightening to put love in the center of that image and to imagine that the officers, which to me seemed like the threat, um, were susceptible to something that's stronger than they are, which is love. Um, it made me also say, right, I mean, if I am going to love a stranger or even my neighbor, I'm vulnerable to them. Yeah. And I've got to say, okay, I know this is important to me, but I have to think about being faithful to what's important to you. And so framing it like that, I mean, the, the terms in the poem... Um, changed my sense of what's at stake, not Mm. just in the photograph, but in in our interactions with each other. Um, And that felt sort of scary (laughs) and productive. Mm. Mm.
2: Tracy, which psalms speak to you, inspire you, and comfort you? Mm. Oh, I
1: wish I had a better memory. I I mean, I grew up reciting them or reading them, but all I really remember are bits of the 23rd Psalm. So I guess that stayed with me. Um, I find myself thinking of strange bits of it, though. Um, Because I've lost both my parents, I think a lot of my work, even the poems that are not about death... Um, there's ele- Elegy lives in, in my poems in some ways. I'm thinking about America and it, it's an elegiac consideration. I'm thinking about um, you know, my own sense of the world that I know, and there's a sense of anticipating loss that lives there. And so the phrase that I think about sometimes um, and try to apply to different contexts is the valley of the shadow of death. You know, like what is this sort of perimeter mm. that this psalm is alerting us to? What is this dangerous sort of like trench that we move through on our way to somewhere else? And um, you know, what resources or what, what means of consolation are there? Um, it feels sadly <laughs> like a useful framework for sometimes thinking about the day-to-day. <laughs> you know, like okay there is something um that seems uncrossable mm. and yet i've got to get through it we together must get through it mm. Mm. Um, And our last question uh, for Tracy. Your father was an engineer on NASA's Hubble Space Telescope. How did he and how did you in turn reconcile this scientific work with the notion of a
0: creator God?
1: Mm. Oh, I wonder if I'll be able to find it in this um, memoir. There's a little passage. I won't try too hard, and if I can't, I'll paraphrase it. Um, But um, my father had this really beautiful way of, um, synthesizing these different parts of himself. Um, I'll just tell you about it. Um, so I thought that maybe I wasn't allowed if I believed in the Bible to want to know like what God looked like, what God had done to start the world in motion. Um, if it was something other than what Genesis told me, mm-hmm. and my father, I, th- I thought, oh well, should I feel torn and thinking about evolution and creation? My dad said, oh no, no, no! How exciting to imagine that you know the time scale upon which something like God exists could you know be different from the one that we live on. So seven days, in, you know our framework could be millions or billions of years in God's and in that time, life could evolve and take shape. And he just, he created this sort of like trap door so that the sense of dogma um, didn't need to apply, didn't need to hinder me. And I could somehow happily go back and forth between the sense of the mysterious and a very orderly view of of the world, which which he had.
0: Well, he also, he was an Air Force engineer, but then he worked with the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm Which is so fantastic to have that kind of in the backdrop of your life as oh, well. Oh, yeah. I mean, mostly what I
1: remember about his work uh, was going to the, the company picnics <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> but I also remember him sitting there talking about what this thing was going to do. And he was so excited. Like he just got large with hope and wonder at thinking this is going to show us the beginning of time looked like, and we'll see to the edge of the universe. And um, that faith kind of seeped through to, to me, you know. And then as an adult, seeing those images, um, I see him a little bit too, mm. which, is, which is beautiful.
0: Mm. I mean, what he was doing also was theology and midrash, right? It was, and it was like, it was treating the, the language of Genesis more like poetry than prose. Certainly not like a scientific textbook, mm-hmm. and it was written more like poetry than yeah. prose. And so it's it's. I mean, it was. It's not just an act of 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 imagination, mm, in the sense that it would be fanciful, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a rational approach to the strategy of storytelling that that's applied. Like, okay, this is allowing us to imagine something that is fundamentally inconceivable.
0: Yeah. Um I would like to um I would like to talk about love some more because I feel like alongside boredom it's another <laughs> word that is rising up. Do you feel that? Mm-hmm. It's oh, everywhere. Yeah. It's exciting. It's exciting. It's this paradoxical response to the moment, but and yet it's absolutely right. Yeah. It's symmetrical. Right? It's the only thing that is symmetrical in in facing up to all the fear and outrage and what looks like anger and hate mm-hmm.
1: yeah I mean we've gone so far in one direction that we've kind of exhausted yeah that rhetoric and so now we get to swing back toward what is enlarging and what I believe is eternal which is you know it's not just this you know like celestial framework or holy framework it's it's Love is a life force. Love is something that animates a person, or two people, or a family, or a community. Um, I um, I spend a lot of time looking at um, narratives of near death experiences. There's one poem in this book that draws <laughs> from that, and I think that the fascination I have is that love is one of the. It's like the central term that. Uh, people who die on the operating table and feel that they go somewhere, feel that they're made to learn or remember something fundamental, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, no matter whether they subscribe to religion or not, love is the word that's on their mouth, their lips when they wake up. Like, I remembered. It's just about giving this thing to everyone that I can. That's why I'm here. Mm. Um, it's exciting, you know, and I love that love is coupled with a sense of threat. Um, and yet, if we're willing to be larger than the fear that that incites, something great
0: could happen. Mm. Mm. And we have to kind of, yeah. And I think we need we need a sensibility that allows us to get quiet and to to be patient, mm-hmm. um, to live into that, right? To grow into that. Yeah. So we're not. We're not there yet at no, we're, we're I mean, <laughs>
1: some of us might be able to get there in small steps and in yeah. the day-to-day. Um, yeah. And those small acts of saying, oh, I see you must be feeling this. Maybe you're upset not because of me standing here, but because of something else that happened. Even that little leap of the imagination, I think, restores something.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something manifests as a personal interaction, but in fact it, is, it has civilizational effect, right? If mm-hmm. it's something we all choose to take up.
1: I, yeah, absolutely. There are versions of the universe where everything continues moving outward and touches everything else eventually Um, I listened to a podcast that was talking about how the air, you know, the air that Christ breathed is still here circulating somehow and um, I think that there's a way of thinking that the intentions that we bring to our actions remain and they have an
0: effect too
2: Mm Mm-hmm
0: Um I don't know why, but when I was getting ready to speak with you, I started thinking about, well, well I, think, I, I, I think a lot these days about how these echoes between the, the decade of the 1960s and now. And actually, okay. on, on this subject of love, I think, I've been having these conversations lately, but, you know, the, the beloved community was the motivation, right? That was the deep intentionality. Mm-hmm. And I think the civil rights movement achieved that within the movement But I feel like the the reckoning and the conversation and the longing that's rising up now is about, you know, can we now carry that forward and make it Mm -hmm. larger? Yeah. Can we cross from one community to the next? Yeah. And here I'm going
1: to say maybe this valley of the shadow version of (laughs) space that I have is what we imagine separates us. My community is sacred. And outside of it, there's this chasm. Yeah. Your community is remote from me because of this thing that sits between us and yet if we can find the, you know, like will or the imaginative like strength to move through that, something really useful could probably result.
0: Yeah, generative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was thinking about this, you know, this great speech that John F. Kennedy gave in 1961. Do you know this about poetry? I don't know if I remember Oh, that's so great that I get to share this with you. I mean, it's an incredible... I can't remember now where he gave this. Um, Maybe somebody here knows. Amherst? Maria Popova knows. (laughs) Um, So he said... In fact, I think I went to your website to find it. (laughs) He says, When power power leads men towards arrogance poetry reminds him of his limitations. When power narrows the areas of man's concern, poetry reminds him of the richness and diversity of his existence. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. For art establishes the basic human truths which must serve as the touchstones of our judgment. So it's beautiful, and you have to go listen to it online and just hear him say it, because I can't, I can't approximate that experience. And, of course, you read this and you think, it is absolutely inconceivable to imagine a politician on any side of our <laughs> political boundary thinking anything like this, right? Yeah. Even to themselves, much less saying it in public. Um, so I thought that. I had that thought. And then I was... Um, I was looking at um, you know, the, the story of you becoming Poet Laureate, and, uh, and I saw that 2017, which is the year you became um, the uh, US Poet Laureate, the first youth poet laureate, that, that, that seat was established. And I thought, mm-hmm. OK, right? Because we, you just think we feel like nothing good and beautiful can emerge, certainly not you know, even in the Library of Congress. And, and it's not true. So there was this beautiful thing, and you actually have taught... You said something about how meeting her, and what is her name? Amanda Um, Gorman. Amanda Gorman, that it made you feel old in a lovely way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I feel that way a lot with... um, Yeah, Amanda's amazing, Mm -hmm. and I feel that way a lot when I meet members of her generation who have this beautiful sense of what is possible and this really... Like a gorgeous sense of fidelity to what is right and kind. And I love how um, my students and students like them are working to create more inclusive spaces, how they have a beautiful, um, ample sense of selfhood, the fluidity of self. There's this, they're completely unafraid of the. You know the things that terrified my generation, let alone my parents' generation it's not it's not real to them, and they're mm-hmm. teaching in their gentle yet urgent way their teachers and their parents how to look at things differently. I get so excited when I think these kids are going to grow up, and their perspective on the world is going to make so much possible that right now is impeded by uh, fear, rigidity, a sense of, well, this is how things have always been done, and this is what we can't stop
0: doing. Right. Right. Um, There was a funny story, or I don't know, you didn't mean for it to be funny, but I think Elizabeth Alexander was (laughs) asking you about your daily rituals, (laughs) <laughs> I just really like that. You said, when I'm happy, I love to eat breakfast. I mean, <laughs> that eating breakfast reminds you of these family breakfasts when you were growing up in a household of five kids. And then you said, when my heart hurts, breakfast is a cigarette sitting at my computer incessantly checking my email inbox. <laughs> oh. But somehow, I, I, that idea of your heart hurting, just that language, I just feel like so many of us feel like that a lot of the time now. Um, as we close I, I think I, well, I I want you to read another poem or two but um just wonder right now uh, just right now this week like what what makes your heart hurt and where are you finding hope hmm. that's a I mean it,
1: it's hard to question because there are a lot of things right what is the what is the small useful thing um, i guess i've been thinking because compassion is this obsession i've been thinking about um how little we see each other you know like we we move past each other we are obstacles to one another's you know like trajectory um but sometimes it moves me to try and say okay I want I want to be seen so I'm gonna I'm gonna look I'm gonna look Mm. and try and connect to people Mm. um there's a a poem maybe I'll, I'll offer to share it because it it came out of like seeing someone who was so just her heart hurt I could see it and There was something that made me so uncomfortable about observing that. I wanted to say something or do something, but I couldn't because that's rude and presumptuous. And I also, in writing a poem about this, realized it wasn't just compassion that I felt. I felt distaste or anger at the fact of her pain in my face mm. and the poem pushed me to kind of figure out a little bit maybe about why so maybe I'll read yes, this poem yeah. it's it's not generous um and then I hope that in its stinginess it's it, it's look, shining shining light on me it's asking me to do something that I need to do um charity She is like a squat old machine, off kilter but still chugging along the uphill stretch of sidewalk on Harrison Street, handbag slung crosswise and, I'm guessing, heavy. And oh, the set of her face, her brows profound tracks, her mouth cinched, Lips pressed flat, watching her bend forward to tussle with gravity, watching the birth she allows each foot as if one is not on civil terms with the other, watching her shoulders braced as if lashed by step after step after step and her eyes' determination not to shift or blink or rise. I think, I am you, one day out of five. Tired, empty, hating what I carry, but afraid to lay it down. Stingy, angry, doing violence to others by the sheer freight of my gloom, halfway home, wanting to stop, to quit, but keeping going mostly out of spite. Um.
0: Um, I think I, maybe one more poem. I was. Um, <laughs> 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 we can't end on we that. We can't no. end on that. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Even if we could, I want to hear another poem. Um, <laughs> I love, actually, The Garden of Eden, I don't, oh. the first poem in "Wait in the Water. Um, uh, and here we are in New York, and I also just kind of like you standing on the cusp of the century. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, that or a political poem or anything else. I mean, you can read a couple. What, 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 are you, what do you feel drawn to?
1: Um, oh, I... Um, how maybe I'll read the title poem
0: partly because
1: it feels like the inverse of that awful scene that I just described is that okay yeah yeah Yeah. Um, and then everybody
0: should go away and read those other two
1: yeah please um yeah this is a poem that comes out of an experience I had that was so beautiful because someone else saw me and is committed to seeing other people um I was in Georgia, I attended a ring shout. Um, it was a trip where I was also visiting a lot of historical sites that had to do with the history of slavery. And um, I was just, it was a heavy trip. And then I got to this place, and one of the women who was about to perform saw me and she said, I love you. And she gave me oh, a hug. Yeah,
0: this one, yeah.
1: And I lost it. She didn't know me, she didn't know what I was dealing with, but that. Just that offering did something beautiful and, and, and painful and, and great. And she said it to everyone, um, but it didn't get cheapened by that mm-hmm. gesture. And so I wanted to kind of like dwell in that sense of grace almost that she, she created. Um, her name is Bertha McKnight, and she's one of the Geechee Gullah ring shouters. Wade in the water. One of the women greeted me. I love you, she said. She didn't know me, but I believed her. And a terrible new ache rolled over in my chest, like in a room where the drapes have been swept back. I love you. I love you. As she continued down the hall, past other strangers, each feeling pierced suddenly by pillars of heavy light. I love you throughout the performance in every hand clap, every stomp. I love you in the rusted iron chains someone was made to drag until love let them be unclasped and left empty in the center of the ring. I love you In the water, where they pretended to wade, singing that old, blood-deep song that dragged us to those banks and cast us in. I love you. The angles of it scraping at each throat, shouldering past the swirling dust motes in those beams of light that whatever we now knew we could let ourselves feel knew to climb. Oh woods oh dogs oh tree oh gun oh girl run oh miraculous many gone oh lord oh lord Oh, Lord, is this love the trouble you promised?
0: Tracy, thank you so much for representing all of us so well yeah. as poet laureate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and thank you to Benet Jeshurun for having On Being here tonight. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.